0: Good afternoon, and thanks so much for being with us on this cloudy Tuesday. We are starting uh, talking about the ongoing transit strike in the Fraser Valley. It is at the one-month mark. That means one month where people in that large region of B.C. have not had access to transit. The Both sides in this dispute still very far apart. We talked about this earlier with the mayor of Chilliwack. We also talked to the union representing striking transit workers as well so at what point does the government get involved well Harry Baines is joining us now he is BC's Minister of Labour Minister Baines thank you so much for taking some time today
1: hey thank you for having me Uh,
0: what has been your involvement in uh, talking to both sides or in this transit dispute
1: well, first, uh, I do uh, feel uh, seriously uh, and and share the frustration by those who rely on this service, uh, the bus service in Fraser Valley, uh, and uh, because there are many um, seniors, many students, uh, we've uh, you've heard stories uh, through the media and uh, many other people who uh, just like to do their daily chores and they're stuck now. Now, having said that, uh, there's a, a collective bargaining process going on, and we are two parties. Uh, are negotiating or trying to negotiate a collective agreement. And uh, uh, under our Constitution and freedom of rights, uh, we uh, workers here in British Columbia and elsewhere in Canada do have a right to free collective bargaining. At the same time, part of that process is that they can withdraw their services. Uh, And I think that's what's happening. And I have uh, reached out to both sides and uh, encouraged both of them To get back to the table because reminded them their responsibility to the people that uh, rely on their service
0: and when you encouraged both sides to get back to the table what kind of a response did you get
1: well you know they uh, both have uh, so far refused to accept our offer of mediation and uh, i do um understand and, and believe that the mediation will work only if the parties are ready for mediation and uh, uh, through the uh, the involvement of a mediator uh, from the labor board. So that offer still is there, and I encourage them to get back to the bargaining table because that's where the collective agreement will be negotiated, at the bargaining table.
0: Uh, does it worry you, though, that, and I think people would agree, and that would be the most preferential end, would be if, if both sides got to the table, uh, whether or not they had help uh, by a mediator or an arbitrator, but but got at least back to the point where they were talking. Uh, they haven't talked, according to the union, uh, QP Local 561, uh, the union saying they've not been at that table since that strike began on March 20th.
1: Now, that concerns me, and that's what I reminded them. I said, you know, as part of your responsibility, to those people who rely on the service that they provide and uh, for the very existence of that service is the people of uh, of the region who rely on the service. I said for their sake, they need to get back to the bargaining table and uh, try to sort out the differences uh, that they, that they still exist uh, in, in reaching out a collective agreement. And um, we will continue to uh, you know, encourage the parties to get back to the bargaining table, but it will be at the bargaining table where the negotiation will be negotiated because the best agreement always is the one that is negotiated at the, at the bargaining table by parties involved.
0: Uh, Do you think that this particular transit strike, is it getting perhaps less attention than when we've seen transit disruptions and strikes uh, affecting Metro Vancouver? Do you think it's getting less attention because it is the Fraser Valley, it's not as big of a population and it's not in people's faces as much?
1: Well, I think, you know, regardless of the size of the community, I think uh, when the services are disrupted, um, for whatever reason, in this particular case, a labour dispute it hurt a lot of people, you know, because there are people who solely depend their movement on, on public transit. And, uh, I feel for them and, uh, you know, whether there's a, uh, you know, a lot of public attention, media attention, I think, uh, that's, that's besides the point. The point is that parties need to get back to the bargain table for the sake of the people that they, that they, they provide service to. And I think, uh, I will continue to, uh, as part of the government, to encourage parties to get back to the bargaining table. because That's where the collective agreement is going to be negotiated, not uh, anywhere else uh, here in Victoria or anywhere else. It has to be at the bargaining table.
0: No, absolutely. Would you make another attempt at trying to get both sides to agree to mediation or to agree to something that would Mm -hmm. at least uh, forward this this in some way or or get at least the both sides talking again?
1: We're monitoring this situation very, very closely on a daily basis, and, of course, uh, we're looking at all different ways how do we encourage them to get back to the bargaining table. And uh, so it's, uh, it's on my mind uh, every day, and uh, so I will be um, you know, continue to encourage them to get back to the bargaining table.
0: Uh, I know uh, if you look for precedent in this kind of thing as well with government intervention, and like you said, that's not uh, the, the solution anybody is looking for. Uh, there have there have been times though in BC's history. I think if you go back to 2001, uh, then Premier Gordon Campbell uh, talked about potentially imposing a settlement that was in the Vancouver uh, transit strike. It had gone on a lot longer; it had gone on for more than 100 days. But uh, so when you say you're monitoring it, if we do see it becoming longer and longer, we're at the two-month mark already, uh, is there potential that, that government would have to take action?
1: Well, there are tools available through the uh, Labour Code uh, in British Columbia, and uh, one of them is um, uh, mediation, and then there is a fact finder, and then, you know, it, uh, it has. But again, at the end of the day, it is the parties who will have to agree and the members that the union represent will be agreeing on a collective agreement. So that's why it is the utmost important for the parties to get back to the bargaining table. That's where the collective agreement will be reached. It will be the best agreement uh, once it's reached by both parties and ratified by the members. Uh, any uh, outside interference, I think uh, it never is a good idea. And uh, I'm not looking at interfering in this dispute uh, either. So I think these are the people who understand their responsibility to the people that they serve, and they are the one who need to get back to the bargaining table and sort out their dispute uh, themselves.
0: Right. And and I know you said that uh, you understand that this is uh, a hardship for many people. There are people who are uh, having a, a very difficult time getting to work, getting to appointments, uh, childcare and such. But but what do you say directly to people who now two months in uh, have either uh, can no longer afford, say, taking an Uber or taking a, a different way to get around and are really not able to, to do what they need to do because of this strike?
1: Yeah, I think <clears throat> to them I say... Uh, you know, we live in a democratic society and people have certain rights and responsibilities. In this particular case, uh, the workers have a right under our constitution, a Charter Rights and Freedom, to join a union uh, and, and, and right to free collective bargaining. Part of the free collective bargaining process under a democratic system is for workers, if they choose to uh, withdraw their services, and the company on the other side also have the right to... Uh, Lock the workers out. That is a democratic process uh, afforded to them uh, through labor code, and uh, I think I I having having you know those rights and responsibilities. uh, You know, sometimes it uh, it inconveniences the people who are not involved in that dispute, and I fully uh, understand their frustration because they need uh, you know, this service for them because many of them, uh, we talked about it before, students and seniors, they don't have any other ability to uh, to move around and, and do their uh, daily chores, and uh, I feel for them. But at the same time, in a democratic society, I think free collective bargaining is a process that is at place here. And I encourage on behalf of all those people that are, <clears throat> are inconvenienced right now, both parties, Uh, understand your responsibilities, and I know they do, then uh, they need to get back to the bargaining table uh, so that they could sort out their uh, differences and uh, get the service going again.
0: All right, Minister Baines, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining the show today.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: All right, that is Harry Baines. He is B.C.'s Minister of Labour. We are going to open up the phone lines on this. Would love to hear from you if you live in the Fraser Valley, if you have been affected by this transit strike. We do have actually a caller right now before we take a quick pause. Let's go to Ray in Abbotsford. Ray, good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon.
0: Uh, You heard the minister there. Uh, He called it an inconvenience. I know for many people it is an inconvenience. Uh, I understand, though, for you it's, it's a bit more than that.
2: Yes, I can't get to my doctor, I can't get to the hospital, I can't get to do my blood work. I can't do anything now. And I don't know why they couldn't have settled this thing a long time ago. You know, it's it's frustrating. And when I ran into the guy, he's 86 years old, on one of those uh, uh, carts there, the four-wheel thing where he's pushing it along. He can't get to get to a hospital. He can't get to the hospital. He can't get to the food supply. He can't do anything. Why can't we settle this? And but Mr. Baines right there, which I've got a lot of time for, um, but we need to get stuff essential service, and that is one of them. I take the two up to do, and go to the three, then go to the five to go to the hospital. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I'm missing my cancer treatments. I'm missing everything. And other people, wow, you know, I, I just don't know why we can't come to an agreement.
0: Uh, Ray, I'm I'm curious when you're talking about you're, you're missing your cancer treatments. Is there any option for you to to book handy dart or get to it that way?
2: It takes two or three months for mm-hmm. handy dart. I checked already. Huh. Okay. Right. No, I'm serious. I'm, I'm 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 just wow. This has caused a lot of hassle. Okay, to not me. I'm I'm able-bodied, but you know, but it's yeah. No, it's caused uh, hassle for everyone here, and it's not just. And people have to go to the doctor in Mission. You know that they can take the 31 going over to Mission. I don't have to, but right. Uh, it, you hear what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely! No, and I and I hear the frustration,
0: and and you are are mm-hmm. one of many many people that uh, that are being impacted by this. But Ray, thank mm-hmm. thank you for for calling, and we're we're going to keep the phone lines open. But thank you for calling and and reminding people who it is that that it, that is dependent on this and hoping very much for a settlement mm-hmm. in this dispute.
2: No, you have an excellent show too. Don't <gasps> miss it.
0: All right. Ray? Thank you, Ray. Thank you so much for your call. That is. Cheers. Well, you may have seen signs around your neighbourhood about invasive beetles and treatments for those beetles. It's been happening for a few years, and it's going to be happening again this year, but there are also signs that it has been a big success. Well, Amit Ganda is the Director of Park Operations with the Vancouver Park Board and joins us now to talk a bit more about this. Amit, thank you so much for being with us.
3: No problem, thank you.
0: Uh, how long? Uh, it's been several years, hasn't it, to, that the park board that this program has been in place?
3: Yeah, it traces back to about 2017. Um, just for context back then we detected um, nearly almost a thousand, I think it's nine hundred and fifty eight beetles uh, back then and in comparison in 2022 we detected 39 so the program has been successful and will continue to do so uh, moving forward
0: wow that's a big decrease in the number of beetles
3: absolutely and i think that just speaks to the dedication of making you know making sure that the staff are out there doing doing their part uh, as we work with the the ministry and the uh, the stakeholders as well uh, on public lands and as well as uh, private lands
0: And what is the issue with these beetles uh, and and why they're a problem and need to be dealt with?
3: Well, the Japanese beetle, um, essentially, it um, it defoliates, it attacks the foliage, the flowers or fruits, um, also can cause damage to lawns, etc. So it's quite extensive. um, So we want to make sure that we're able to address that. um, And hence the program back in 2017 Started the uh, started the treatment plan,
0: and uh, I know they're an invasive beetle. Do we know how they arrived here?
3: No, I can't. I can't give you concrete um, (laughs) evidence (laughs) on exactly how. But uh, but they they were detected, and hence, and of course, you know the treatment plans to replace.
0: All right, and these are—is it the the nests or the traps that you kind of can? Uh, sometimes we'll see hanging off trees the the green and yellow uh, type traps. Are those what uh, uh, park board officials or staff use to to trap them and to kind of get a better idea
3: on the numbers? Yeah, exactly. You'll see those those green with the yellow tops, and essentially that is for monitoring. Um, you know, they will catch the the beetles, and that gives us a real good indication of um, well if we're having success or not. And if there's potential uh, spread, then we're able to detect it early on so that if we need to expand the treatment zones, then we can.
0: All right. So, looking at those numbers then from more than 8,200 in 2018 to just 39 last year, is there the, the idea then that the, the spraying or the, um, the treatment is going to happen again this year? I mean, does it seem that it could be possible then to eradicate the entire thing?
3: Well, I think we're gonna we're definitely planning to do so this year as well, as far as the treatment plan goes. Um, you know, we we will take direction as well from the ministry on um, on what next steps are. So we'll continue to to through 2023. We'll have the plan in place to treat uh, the areas that have been identified. Um, but then we're just we're also just the city of Vancouver. I mean, you know, there's going to be other cities also working on the same same plan, whether it's Burnaby, Coquitlam, or Richmond. So overall, we'll get. Clearance and guidelines, and then from there we'll see. So for 2023, definitely planned, um, and then we'll see what happens for 2024, depending on what happens this year as far as accounts go.
0: All right, and can you tell us a little bit about the treatment itself? How does that work?
3: Well, it's just essentially it's a ground treatment. Um, it's uh, it's Aceloprint is what it is, and this is something that is completely healthy uh, and safe for people, pets, mammals, birds, and bees, for example. So we want to make sure that the public are aware of that. And that's also on the messaging that we put out prior to treatment. And so prior to treatment, we make sure that the public is aware of what is happening. So we'd like to notify everybody, and if you see this signage out there, um, that's essentially what it's for.
0: And what should people do then if they do see the signage or they're, they've come into a park or a green space where this uh, larvicide has been used? Is it best to avoid it or are there any issues uh, there? there?
3: There are no issues, but what we like to do is just provide um, just information for the public. Uh, what it's really for is to let, us, to let the staff get onto the fields and do the treatment. So it just makes sure that everybody is safe. Sometimes we use um, equipment, that is out there so we want to make sure it's safe for the public but as far as um, anything else no just monitor the signs of course follow instructions and if possible just stay clear of that space till the work is done and then it's, it's fine
0: and any concerns uh, we we do have a lot of dog owners in the city of vancouver any concerns with dogs going and being on grass or areas that have been treated right after it's been treated
3: no no hence the you know as i mentioned before the Celebrate, it is safe. Um, for, for pets. So, no, there's no issues there. It's just, yeah, no <laughs> no concerns.
0: All right. Uh, can you talk a little bit, with, with the numbers being so low, does that change then the areas and the amount of area that's going to be treated this year?
3: Absolutely. So, as part of the monitoring, we've been able to scale back the treatment um, areas. So, it's it's dramatically reduced in size. But we, we obviously want to be mindful of, of what happens this year. Um, if there is, say, more, like it depends on what the counts come back at, it's just monitoring. Um, we, we, I don't think we can just settle for a, a low count. It is something that we definitely need to address. But again, going back to the ministry's direction on this, we'll, we'll follow that. But uh, the scale has definitely come down in size in comparison to back in 2017. But that being said, we'll just continue to monitor and then address and adapt if we need to.
0: Right, because I guess the, the, what you don't want to see happen is, is a rebound of these beetles or that number going back up.
3: Absolutely, and, and I think it's imperative that we, we, we don't do that. Um, hence, the program just will continue for 2023. Um, and then also, uh, you know, the other municipalities also are, are looking at this. So, you know, we may see numbers decrease here, but we don't know what may happen in other uh, municipalities as well. So overall, we have to make sure that the, the region is is clear of this so we'll work closely with our partners on that as well
0: all right do do people need to do anything if somebody sees one of these beetles i know the traps are out there and that's the way that the park board gets the numbers and knows kind of where they are but if somebody was to see one of these beetles are they supposed to report it or what do they do in that scenario
3: they can. They can contact us at the city with 311. They can uh, obviously report that for sure, and we can take that information and ensure that it's followed up on. Um, other than that, um, you know, it, sometimes it's very difficult to identify, but, uh, but that being said, they're welcome to contact 311 and report it, and then our staff can, can look into it in further detail.
0: All right, and you kind of touched on this as far as the treatment areas and where that's going to be done. Uh, when will this all be wrapped up as far as the treatment for this year?
3: So our goal actually is to start the treatment uh, this week again. Um, It's also weather dependent. So if we have lots of rain, we have to kind of pause things. But it's going to be starting up this week. um, And then over the next uh, six to eight weeks, we hope to um, have it completed um, unless there's something that we need to add. But we'll monitor the schedule for that as well.
0: All right. Well, good to make it so everybody knows what's happening if they see those signs or if they see members or park operations out there putting the treatment on those green areas. Emmett, thanks so much for taking some time and for bringing us up to date on this.
3: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: We have spent a lot of time talking about the removal of tents on East Hastings Street in Vancouver. Certainly the encampments that we have seen in parks and other parts of Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island, for that matter. And that came up in question period earlier today. But what about what is happening in other districts? And right now, joining me to talk more about this is Kevin Dahlgren, who is a homeless advocate, also a Portland area drug counselor, with his take on what is being done and what could be done a whole lot better. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: There are a lot of similarities between Portland, uh, parts of Oregon, as well as what's happening in Metro Vancouver, Vancouver's downtown east side. I'm curious your thoughts, because you've spent so much time helping people, dealing with homelessness, uh, about uh, kind of what's working and what's
4: not. Well... What's not working, I'll start with that because that's the biggest issue, is that, um, you know, social services, the homeless issue has become very radicalized and almost really monopolized by progressives that have made this more about a social justice movement rather than actually helping the homeless person. And that's an issue. So what we hear is a lot of talk about the rights of the homeless, body autonomy, the rights to use, da-da-da. On and on and on without actually getting to the root causes of what led him to the streets and how we can get him off the streets and certainly the west coast of the united states which is a very progressive part of the country uh there's there's really virtually no outreach happening where you're actually work you know sitting with the homeless person understanding the situation and trying to get to really the root causes my number one goal in life is to end this humanitarian crisis and that's difficult because i have such this opposing force that keep saying, no, 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 no. Let's talk about affordable housing issues and housing first model and harm reduction and all this stuff that honestly hasn't worked. And so it's not personal people. I'm just saying if if this doesn't work, let's try something differently. What is working is when you see when outreach teams are doing the approach, are building that trust and bringing back hope and understanding where they ended up there and how can we give them the right tools to reach their fullest potential. And that should be the number one goal when interacting and working with a homeless person is how do we help them reach their fullest potential and hopefully become self-sufficient. Because if we do this, they no longer are in the system and we're no longer paying for it. And that's the ultimate goal. Not to mention we've empowered as individual to live their best life.
0: Uh, Oregon has decriminalized some illicit drugs. Uh, The same thing has happened here in Vancouver. Uh, I know you've talked about this and said that you were opposed to that measure. What has that done or what have you seen that do in your area?
4: Well, first of all, to the uh, people listening that disagree with me, how's that working for you? Right. Like people are languishing and dying every day. Are you kidding me? When this passed, I saw the future. I was like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that could have ever happened. And it's true. Overdoses and deaths are through the roof. And, you know, what they say about Measure 10 is we're going to decriminalize drugs, but then Section 2 is we're going to do intensive-type recovery services to help them get clean. Well, the problem is is Step 2 never happened. So all we've done is decriminalize drugs and allowed this large population of people who already had issues with addiction. Now it just became this free for all. Just use as much as you want without any uh, uh, restrictions and without any kind of rules, regulations or anything. And it's just been devastating. The decriminalization of drugs is the worst thing you can do. I mean, imagine, you know, handing a drug in which you have a 50% chance of really overdosing. I'm talking about fentanyl to a person who lacks uh, critical thinking and rational thought. That is completely insane. That is the most inhumane thing we have ever done. And I'm a drug and alcohol counselor. This is inhumane. Our number one goal should be a recovery type model to help these people break that cycle of addiction, get them the help they need, and again, uh, help them uh, reach their fullest potential.
0: Uh, do you have uh, I would imagine there, there's also the argument because certainly we we've, we've heard that here as well and the numbers of overdoses the number of deaths in Vancouver and BC uh, continue to rise uh, the argument is often made though that decriminalization has has taken it out of the so somebody won't end up in the criminal justice system but then the argument is it needs to go with safe supply uh, is that something that that is talked about or you see in, in Portland in Oregon as well?
4: Well, safe supply not in Portland, but we see it in San Francisco uh, is you're talking about the safe injection sites. Where even more a, than that though the
0: the safe injection sites here, you still take your own drugs. There are people advocating yes. that people should have access to to like prescription or or like going to a liquor store, but getting illicit drugs.
4: Oh, gosh. Oh, so yeah, that I'm sorry, uh, it's a little bit different here, but no. That, that, again, is the worst thing. I understand why they're doing it, because they're saying, well, this helps regulate it and we can track it, da-da-da. But the fact is, you know, if we really discuss what the root causes of addiction and homelessness is, it really comes down to this, childhood trauma, okay? And so this is a person that really needs intensive-type mental health care, not the ability to continue to use because it's what they think they need. That's the problem. That is another Band-Aid, Band-Aid solution. Why don't we get to the root, root causes of what's actually going on Why they're choosing us, right? Someone like you and me, we're never gonna be like, yay, let's go use now, right? Mm -hmm. And why is that? Let's ask ourselves, what makes us different than others? Why do some people choose us and why some people not? That's the questions we should be asking, not given an ability to do it because it's something they need. Just because someone thinks they need something doesn't make it okay. So no, I don't support that. We, we These are band-aid solutions. We need to really dig deep and find out what led them down this path of addiction and homelessness. We get to those root causes. This is how we're going to end this crisis. Not with safe supply, not with harm reduction, not with safe injection sites.
0: And you mentioned housing as well, and that is an ongoing issue in Vancouver as well. I know Portland and, and other areas where you are. What about the, the, the argument, though, of course, being if someone's living on a, on a street in a tent or someone's living, uh, you know, under an overpass, they're not going to be getting the help either. Is it, is it housing, but then we kind of drop the ball when it comes to services and, and helping somebody rather than just housing them?
4: Yeah, we do. We drop the ball. So one of the main components of the Housing First model is something, it says voluntary services, which means once the person is placed in government funded housing first, they can voluntarily choose to receive services, which means there is no requirement. And that is a problem. I'm not 100%. I don't 100% object to the housing first model. If wraparound services are also offered to help them reach their fullest potential, I am saying that that's not happening and that's a problem. And, Uh, that's, that's the biggest flaw in this type of housing. Yes. I would rather have a person in housing than on the streets. But the fact is a good 40 to 50% of the homeless I have met on the streets in the West coast United States would say, I'm not going to accept any housing whatsoever. And why? Because they're so they've so adapted to the street life. They can't imagine going indoors. So really I would, you know, I would say that the only way I would support this is is if actual wraparound care was happening. That was required, okay? They always say, oh, it's there if they want it. Well, they're not asking for it, so we're just going to pay the rent for the rest of their lives? That's completely insane. How is that empowering a person? That's just enabling them. Yes, it hides the problem, but it also hurts our communities because by hiding the problem, we continue to pay for it. That's why budgets every year continue to grow, and that's an issue, and this is why I call it the homeless industrial complex, right? Mm -hmm. That's something we need to disrupt.
0: What are your thoughts on mandatory treatment? Because I know that's always controversial.
4: (sighs) Well, I mean, that's a tough one because I am a drug and alcohol counselor, and generally speaking, mandatory treatment does not really work because the person has to want to change and wants to You know, uh, recover. But I will also argue that if not, if given, if they're not given a choice, they're ten times more likely to be given the tools they need, whether they want to or not. And at the bare minimum, it's probably going to make it more likely that they're eventually going to recover. I'm just saying it doesn't work for everybody. Uh, You know, we don't have mandatory treatment here. Uh, We certainly don't have locked treatment. So it's kind of a you know, this is a tough one to answer because. Everybody is different. It might work for some, but not for others. But uh, one thing that has worked here in some of our communities is an option, jail or treatment. (laughs) And nine times out of ten, they choose treatment. And guess what? They do recover because they're terrified of jail. Because guess what? Sometimes there's consequences to their negative behavior. And so that does work. That has been very effective. I have two very close friends uh, who actually... Uh, We're on the streets, we're forced into treatment rather than jail, and they're thriving now because finally the community said enough is enough. You don't get to do this anymore. And so that was holding them accountable. So, the accountability piece is a very important piece to ending this crisis, for sure.
0: And that kind of answers uh, my last question was was just to to ask you, and I know it, it's more complicated and it, it probably is is an answer that could go on for hours. but uh, we know that obviously pouring more money into this, doing what we've been doing, whether we're talking about in Oregon or in Vancouver, is not working. Uh, what needs to change, do you mm-hmm. think?
4: Yeah. Yeah. First of all, uh, the uh, big red flag is anytime you hear a politician ask for more money to end homelessness, it means they don't understand homelessness. Because if money were the solution, we would have absolutely solved it by now. The solution is really in understanding the homeless and getting to the root causes of what led them there, what led them to addiction, mental illness, all that. Because to solve a problem, you have to understand a problem. And there's really that not a lot of effort. People will naturally think let's build more housing because housing ends homelessness. But that's a, a very narrow view, a a narrow understanding of what homelessness is about. So really it's, I would say, start with the actual approach, sitting with the homeless and understanding their situation and getting to know their history and stuff. That's how we're going to end this crisis. But before that happens, we need rules. We need expectations behavioral expectations we need to say in our communities enough is enough there's certain things you no longer get to do there's certain rule there's certain lines you don't get to cross that should be bare minimum it's no different than the rules that you and i and all others you know follow every single day you know i put my seatbelt on i have to wear this i have to do this i have to uh, honor the the this the, the speed rule I'm just saying that there's rules every day, but rules don't seem to apply if you're homeless or an addict. Somehow, because they do that, they're not capable. Well, guess what? They are. One of the most magical things that happens in my work is when I hold a homeless person accountable or an addict and says, enough is enough. This is what I need you to do. And guess what? They meet me halfway. They're like, all right, Kevin, what do I got to do? Because I've given them purpose. I've given them responsibility. That's how we do this. Our job is to empower these individuals, not enable. That is key.
0: All right. Well, Kevin, it was great talking with you. We're going to leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this.
4: Thanks, Jill. 1.34
0: 134 on this Tuesday afternoon well we have a lot to talk about when it comes to inflation the price of food movement when it comes to one of the top people the best known name perhaps when it comes to grocery chains so many things to get to and joining us to talk about this is Sylvain Charlebois director of the Agri-Food <laughs> Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Where to begin? Let's start with Galen Weston and the news uh, that Galen Weston is stepping away as Loblaw's president. Is this a big deal?
5: Um, I think it's a big deal for uh, the company. Uh, um, I think it's a good move overall. Uh, Let's face it, um, Mr. Weston became a lightning rod for the company and they needed to do something. Uh, it became such a distraction that nobody really cared about numbers, really. It became such an irrational uh, debate, uh, whether it's on social media or with politicians and, and people out in the public. So uh, it, I think it was time for him to step back. And so he made the right decision. Uh, coming in as someone that I don't know about, uh, he seems to have a very strong crack record out of, Denmark, and uh, but I, I actually believe it's it's going to be temporary for maybe a few years when things are calm down, and then they'll he'll step back into the role.
0: And why do you think that? Just to kind of let things um, kind of blow over a bit, and then quietly resume that again.
5: Well, I, I don't think he's going to go away uh, far away. He's going to be around, uh, but my 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 belief is that uh, Mr. Weston's uh, days. Uh, in front of a camera with a yellow shirt are numbered for now.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. So that was making headlines or is continuing to make headlines today. At uh, the same time, we're also seeing the food inflation rate dropping a bit. And I know you were sharing some of those numbers. What is it looking like now?
5: It's looking better. Uh, uh, so the rate has dropped um, What's pushing prices higher year to year are bakery goods and um, vegetables and vegetables are really because of the uh, climate situation in, in California uh, the bakery situation is about uh, the grain market all both both of these issues are are kind of uh, behind us so uh, so things are actually looking better month to month when you look at um, what jumped from February to March, two categories uh, uh, stand out. Uh, one is, uh, again, bakery, and the other one is dairy. So dairy is uh, becoming a little bit of a problem because of of prices. But overall, it's it's better than, than in February. However, uh, the gap between inflation and food inflation has actually increased to five four 4.6%, which is the highest since 2009.
0: Hmm. And, and when we look at yeah. the, those things, then, that, that uh, you've talked about, too, that uh, that are dropping a bit, uh, rates dropping for things like meat, fish, uh, and, and, and things. Why are we seeing uh, th- those uh, prices drop?
2: Uh,
5: it's, well, meat prices, uh, for some reason, a lot of people still believe that meat prices are still quite high. They've been a non-story for the last couple of years, except for poultry, because of the avian flu, uh, especially where you guys are. Uh, the avian flu really impacted the uh, poultry uh, industry, but other than that, the meat has been okay. Uh, it's just other categories that have really been impacted by some of the major factors. Um, so uh, fish and seafood, uh, again, bakery, dairy, uh, fruits, vegetables. So those are the categories that we, 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 where we've seen a lot of fluctuation.
0: And dairy specifically, as well, looking at dairy, of course, we have supply management that we have talked about in this country yes. in the past. Is that, is that the factor, or what is it you think that's still driving those prices up?
5: Well, so dairy is, uh, is the one thing we don't know exactly. We know that wholesalers, uh, manufacturers are raising prices. Now, it all depends what, what retailers plan to do, because uh, you don't want to spook your customers, so they tend to increase prices incre- incrementally over time. Uh, that's kind of probably what's going on right now, and, and food inflation is less of an issue. Um, the lower the rate is, uh, the, the, the higher the chances uh, you'll see more deals at the grocery store, so it's really good news, really, but uh, don't expect uh, your, your food bill to uh, drop anytime soon, unfortunately.
0: Oh, all right. So, so not the, the, the yeah. greatest news. I knew <laughs> you were going to ask the question. <laughs> so not right away. Yeah. Um, there was an interesting story today as well about Costco and uh, one of Costco's executives saying that they are not profiting uh, from food inflation, that they're not uh, pushing up the prices. And And I thought that was interesting. We haven't talked a lot about Costco. We've talked about some of the other grocery chains and certainly uh, the testimony that we heard. But what are your thoughts on on
5: that? Well, it's uh, <laughs> Costco is not one retailer that really brags a whole lot and doesn't talk to media a whole lot. So, But I'm glad that they've done it because it's not just about uh, Loblaw or Sobeys or Metro. There are two other players, Walmart and Costco, and they actually sell both combined more more than $30 billion worth of food in Canada. So, uh, and But Costco's model is very different. Basically, it's 4,000 SKUs, 15%. So when you buy something at Costco, you pretty much have a good idea how much money you're going to make, but they don't carry everything. They just carry 4,000 products, unlike other grocers. So it's a bit, bit of a different model. But I agree, they, they're not profiting because it's 4,000 SKUs, 15%. Hmm.
0: Interesting. So it, I guess refreshing kind of in a way then to hear from another voice, another seller, even though, like you say, it is, it is a different model.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And all of them are different. Uh, I would say that Walmart is really the one that uh, I would say, uh, quote unquote, bullies the supply chain, gets the best deal possible. And most people don't necessarily see Walmart as a gouger because they uh, they do have the rollback program offering lower prices and they don't necessarily have a pricey um, uh, private label, either like President's Choice, so it's a bit different. But the number one is Loblaw in Canada, and that's why it's so easy to actually consider Loblaw as a target.
0: Hmm. And so, and how does Walmart do that? Just is it is it volume and the fact that they're able to do that? Because you're right, there can be, and it's not even a, a, a product that's similar to something that you might see in another store. It's the exact same product, and it's often a lot yep. cheaper.
5: Well they discipline the supply chain very differently they 're very tough on their suppliers uh, it's uh, it's an eat what you kill sort of approach and so it's a bit, with gro- with grocers it 's a bit different with food because you want you 're limited in your options of suppliers that you have, so you don 't want to upset uh, uh, a supplier that you actually like well Walmart doesn 't fall in love with suppliers at all, like zero. <laughs>
0: All right, yeah. uh, and uh, <laughs> Sylvan, just to go back to, to the numbers as well, and the inflation numbers, and and with the seeing it drop in some cases, do you anticipate, or are we able to even kind of anticipate that this will will be a bit of a trend, or or like you said, don't expect your bill to be less if you're going to the grocery store today or tomorrow. But what can we expect? Do you think?
5: I think we're, we're, we should expect better deals, calmer seas. Um I'm, I'm really hoping that the gap between inflation and inflation uh, drops because uh, at 4.6%, it's, it's a lot. It means that, you know, you walk around, and you buy different things in the economy and, and things are starting to feel a little bit more normal. While at the grocery store, it's, it's still quite violent. That needs to change. And uh, so once that changes, then I suspect people will start to be less fearful and, and more hopeful a little bit.
0: All right. So we will uh, leave on that high note. Sylvain, always great to chat with you about these issues. Thank you so much for joining us again today.
5: Take care. Bye-bye.